2016 promises to be a busy year on the public policy front, and Brenda Talent's organization plans to be a big player in the discussion. The CEO of the Show Me Institute joins us on another edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair As to I say. I say, hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today is... Colleague Joe Manis. And our very special guest for today... Brenda Talent from the Show Me Institute. Welcome to our, our beautiful studios. I, I know that you, you didn't have a lot of trouble finding it because you're occasionally on Donnybrook right next door. So. And you're also not that far from here, correct? No, I'm not. So it's great to be here. And thank, thank you for, for being our guest. Um, but before we ask you kind of about your, your life story in five minutes, could you just tell our listeners a little bit about what the Show Me Institute is, kind of the issues that they, they represent and you know, anything else that we need to know about your organization? Certainly. The Show Me Institute is a research and educational organization. A lot of people like to call it a think tank. Uh, We do, too. It's the only free market think tank in the state of Missouri. So what we focus on is researching and talking about policies that will help Missouri grow economically from a free market perspective. How long has it been around for? I I seem to remember it it started right when I started covering Missouri politics in the mid-2000s. Is it about 10 years old at this point? It is. The first paper we issued was back in March of 2006. Okay, so it's it's a big birthday coming up with, with <laughs> 10 candles that'll yeah. be going. So um, I know there, the Show Me Institute is is a private organization. You're generally funded by private donations, correct? We're, we are a public charity. So we are funded by donations from people like you. Yeah. And uh, well, I don't donate to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> I donate to charity. Well, but. well I meant... So, Jason, now. you can contribute to it. Well, I probably will pass on that, but 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 it's like a five hundred one c three. Three. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that so that means you can't get involved in elections or advocate on any issues. No, we Is don't. We don't. We don't get involved with party politics or candidates. You do advocate on issues, obviously, yeah. but but not like getting involved, as you said, in in, right. in partisan politics. And 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 of course, our the positions we take on our our public policy issues are based upon the research we're doing. And uh, most of that research comes from an economic perspective. Now, of course, there's always been a lot of attention to your donors, and that includes Rex Singfeld, who's a wealthy financier, semi-retired. He's in St. Louis. Um, But I I know that there are others, correct? I mean, he's not your only. No, absolutely. As a public charity, we have a broad base of donors. Yeah, but I think he helped. Didn't he help found the Institute, essentially? He was one of three founders, uh, Rex Singfield, Crosby Kemper, and um, Mike Podgurski, who is a professor of economics at the University of Missouri. Now, uh, the Show Me Institute is primarily concerned with financial, I mean, how issues are addressed on a financial basis, as opposed to, let's say, Abortion or guns. Or right. We, like we focus on economic and fiscal issues for the state of Missouri. Our focus is the state of Missouri. We don't get in, involved in national issues except to the extent that there is an impact on our state. Now, are there other states that have something like the Show Me Institute? My understanding is that most states in our nation actually have think tanks that are similar to ours. In other words, coming at policy issues from a free market perspective, although many of them 
don't just focus on economic issues. They will focus on a number of what I would call social issues also. Yeah, because okay. I've heard your organization described as libertarian leaning. Not, it's not I, I don't I know that's hard to put it in a box because that's kind of our subjective terms, but it, it's not like every issue that you you take a stand on falls in line with like the general mainstream Republican Party on, on many, many we, respects. I would say we don't align with any party. I, yeah. I joke about the fact that we are an equal opportunity offender on any particular issue. We can have very different kinds of supporters, um, whether you're talking about tax subsidies or whether you're talking about educational reform. So the, the people who get involved in, in, in our issues who are interested in what we're talking about really cut across political spectrums. So how long have you been um, the executive director? Is that the correct title? Well, it's CEO now. Okay. okay. Uh, but I've been there for five years. Wow. Wow, yeah. that's great. Now, I guess, you know, for some of our listeners, uh, okay, A, you're a tax lawyer on your own. I know a Quick. lot about your background because I did a big profile <laughs> on you about 10 years ago. And there's a reason for that. And um, because you are married to Jim Talent, who's the former U.S. senator and a gubernatorial candidate. About 10 years ago? Actually, about years 15 ago? years ago. Yes. He ran for governor in Correct, 2000. 2000. He ran for Senate, Senate in 2002, 2002 and then ran for re-election in 2006. But before I ask any other questions, that must have been a tough experience as a, as a political family running three competitive statewide elections in a row. And Did, at the same time, you're raising a family and you're working. Well, the um, the good part of it was that I got to focus on the family part of it, and I could dabble in the politics of it as was convenient. So, you know, when you're um, when I married Jim back in 1984, he was running for the Missouri General Assembly. So there's a part of your life where if it's always been that way, you don't really look back at it and go, "Boy, that was tough." It's just sort of like. That's how we live. <laughs> well, I think your life story, maybe I'm biased because I did do this profile on you about. Um, talk a little bit about your back, because your background is really fascinating, really. I'm serious. Um, so a little bit about that. Um, well, my father was in the Air Force. He was a um, uh, master sergeant, so an NCO. We traveled basically uh, every year we moved because uh, he was re restationed every year. So I, I grew up in the, the military. I got an ROTC scholarship for college, and then I went to law school. I was in the JAG Corps yes. for four years. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, I think I joked with you then, and I like to joke even now, that my, my, my nephew always thought that I was like, I don't know if this is dating me, but there used to be a TV series yes, called JAG. JAG. Yes. And he thought I was that kind of person. I, I do have to ask this question. <laughs> well, and I, there is that very famous movie, A Few Good Men. Yeah. You know, well, there which, you. I, I, I was curious about this because I knew that you came from a JAG background. Do you have to go through like basic training and learn how to shoot automatic weapons while doing that? Or do you just go in there from law school, essentially? Well, if you were a typical JAG officer, then you wouldn't have to do that. But I went through ROTC, so I actually did do that. That. Yeah. So, so how did you meet um, Jim Talent in law school at the University of Chicago? Mm -hmm. We both went there for law school, and uh, that's where we met. As I was joking in the green room, just an okay law school, as exactly. I would say. <laughs> exactly. You He's know, being sarcastic. It's actually one of the best law schools in in the country. So, you know, we, as you kind of alluded to earlier, your your husband had a very long and storied political career, but 
you were a, a tax attorney throughout this entire time? I was, yeah. um, principally in the area of tax litigation, state and federal tax litigation. Yeah. Do you do you still do any of that now, or is it full-time Show Me Institute? It's full-time Show Me Institute, but I would say that because we talk about economic and fiscal issues, on occasion I can be a research resource for my experts in telling them how the tax law actually works. Yeah. So you're a double threat. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so to speak. Yeah. So what prompted you to take um, this position and just sort of how you kind of see things since you took over, um, how things, um, how the Show Me Institute is approaching things? It's become, I would say, a higher profile player in state government as far as, you know, lobbying for certain positions. Well, uh, first of all, I mean, we actually, from a lobbying perspective, it's very limited. What we try to do is present our research and I guess a balanced, I should say advocate. Sorry. Yeah, a, and a balanced view, and and we hope in a persuasive view that when people look at the facts, they'll say that makes sense. But um, my joke is that I went through a midlife crisis, um, and so I could either <laughs> buy a red convertible or I could do something different. And then I decided, well, not the red convertible. But no, really, I've always been interested in public policy. As we discussed earlier, my husband was certainly involved in public policy. And still is. And still is. And this was an opportunity for me to get involved and get involved in an area in which I have a high comfort level. I wouldn't say that I have interest in going through the rigors myself of, of running for office. But this is a way where you can impact public policy from... An objective, I I consider it from an objective perspective, where you're making the case and having a debate about issues instead of personalities, and I love that. Although you do have some, I think, some familiarity, at least, with how kind of government works from your days on the Parkway School Board, correct? Well, I would like to think I have a lot of familiarity no, with how but, government but, operates. But I meant as far as yes. hands-on yourself. Right. Because you attracted a lot of headlines at that time, you know, because a lot of, there was a lot of fiscal fighting going on in the Parkway School District during those years, and you ended up being a player as far as how they should spend money and that sort of thing. Exactly. So that was your first and, I guess, last foray into elective office. (laughs) You've you've already answered my my last question. So how long were you on the school board? I was on the school board for three years, which is the term. Um, I... And I, I had our first child my last year that I was on the Parkway School Board. And so let's just say other duties called for my attention. Understood. <laughs> and for full disclosure, my father is a, a alumni of Parkway Central. So there you go. <laughs> Very good school. Very yeah. good school. So let's just kind of dive into issues. We have a lot to talk about. Even though it's the end of the year, there's a lot of outstanding issues to, to, to or discuss. Next year. Or the beginning of next year. Or the beginning of next year. Um, one thing that comes to mind that's going to be an issue in 2016 locally is the earnings tax because there will be a vote on the ballot, Correct. I believe, in April yes. about whether to renew it. It's the uh, result of a statewide initiative that passed in 2010. That Singfield was involved in. Right. And um, at the same time, some legislators are, are actively talking about removing the earnings tax from a legislative level. Um I think that both Joe and I kind of know what the Show Me Institute's take on that, but since I guess our listeners can't read our minds right now, kind of lay out what your group kind of thinks of of this impending battle and how active you might your group might be in. Well, 
what we've d- discussed is just the impact of the earnings tax. So we're not really involved in this quote-unquote legislative mm-hmm. battle that's coming up. What we've done is we've published research, and actually a first research, I believe, that we did publish back in 2006 related yes. to the earnings tax. Um, because when you look at the competitiveness of our state and of our cities, St. Louis and Kansas City, the earning tax has a very negative impact on their competitiveness. Number one, it's taxed on dollar one. So whether you're a waitress or whether you're a partner in a law firm, the first dollar you earn in those cities is going to be subject to the earnings tax. Um, In addition, what we see is that tax on the production of income is is really adverse as compared to taxes on consumption. If you want to increase production and productivity, you want to reduce taxes on that activity. So as a consequence, we've, we as a state, and particularly the cities, have put themselves at a competitive disadvantage. And you see that nowhere more clearly than in Kansas City, where we have a road, state line, where right. you just move your business across the street and automatically you save across the board 1%. So um, I have talked to Singfeld about this, but I'm interested if the Show Me Institute has a position on what, because in the city of St. Louis, I mean, it's, it's close to 40% of, this, of the city's budget comes from the earnings tax. Is there anything, I mean, just looking at it philosophically, that the, that the Institute would recommend that cities consider doing instead? There are a number of different um, alternatives we've discussed. One is tax on property. The other is simply getting rid of the tax subsidies that our cities are providing to various companies. Um, Both in Kansas City and St. Louis City, you're going to see examples where the city has cut a deal with a company where they're promising billions of tax subsidies. And that's diverting funds that would otherwise come. Tax abatement, yeah. Right. And, um, you know, I think it was, was it Laclede, where just they moved just a couple of blocks and they received a huge tax subsidy. In uh, Kansas City, we have Burns and McDonald that wanted to expand their headquarters. They re- and, and, and what happened was the property that was adjacent to their headquarters was treated as blighted. And as a consequence, they qualified for a huge tax subsidy from the Kansas City. These kinds of activities need to cease to create a more level playing field within both of the cities. Now, I'll admit, I'm not a huge expert on tax abatement or tax subsidies from a local level. But my assumption is the reason they're used so often in St. Louis and Kansas City is I guess the cities themselves don't have many more economic incentive tools besides that. So... If you get rid of the earnings tax and you stop using those types of tools, what would be kind of a good way to potentially get businesses to do a big redevelopment project or to lure another company to the central city, essentially? Well, I think part of it is if you eliminate the earnings tax, then you'll be on a more competitive uh, playing field. I mean, right now, if you're a company and you're looking and you want to be in Missouri, which is a big if, if you want to be in Missouri... Do you locate in St. Louis County or do you locate in St. Louis City? Well, again, right off the bat, you save 1% if you locate in the county versus the city. So the earnings tax, eliminating that in and of itself, could be a huge draw for more companies coming within the city. And in fact, that's often a negotiation tool that they use through what they call redevelopment, where they, in fact, basically uh, forgive 
the earnings tax for those companies. So that that's number one. And as I say, number two is are property taxes that you can you can you can pursue. Um, because I know Singfeld had always been an advocate of like land tax. Yeah, the land. I mean, he and I talked about this well, one time. And another one is privatizing certain operations of the city where you can receive a huge influx by selling certain assets, which are commonly run by private companies, mm-hmm. and then invest that. Do you think the earnings tax is the be-all, end-all of why cities are not – let me rephrase that and I'll edit this out – do you think that the earnings tax is the be-all, end-all of why businesses decide to locate in St. Louis County or St. Louis? Because I could imagine, for example, a, a company may want to build in Chesterfield, for example, because there's a lot of vacant land that they could build a building from scratch, whereas in St. Louis, they would have to go into an older building stock. Is it really that big of a decision point for a lot of these companies? I think it's one of many. I, I And I've said this in, in other contexts. I think there are a lot of variables that negatively impact the economic environment of a city. One is the tax environment. The other is the regulatory environment. Have you created barriers to growth which discourage companies from locating in the city? The other is an educated workforce. I mean, look at our, our public schools in St. Louis City, in Kansas City. They, they present some significant obstacles for, for businesses who might want to locate in those cities. And then the other is crime. I mean, you want a place that's secure. So those are all variables that contribute to it. But the tax environment is not an insignificant one, and it's one that we can address fairly easily. Now, just playing devil's advocate for discussion purposes, there would some who say, well, if that was the case, because Missouri already has, like from the state, some of the lowest taxes in the country. Yet you've got people, let's say, like Stan Kroenke, who wants to move to California, which has huge taxes. Or, you know, you have places like New York, New York City, for example, which has a lot of taxes. When, when people talk to you about why Missouri may be lagging behind some of these other states where there are higher taxes, kind of what's your um, response to that? Well, first of all, we actually have a paper on this, that Missouri isn't a low-tax state. There are certain taxes which are low. Okay. A cigarette, alcohol, those are very low, mm-hmm. particularly when you look uh, around, around uh, the surrounding states. And I actually think on our cigarette tax, we're probably We the are lowest. the lowest yes, in the, the country. The it's lowest. 17 cents, and so, the average is like a dollar. But if you look at income taxes and sales tax, not so much. Mm-hmm. And, and part of the issue in this state is you will see dedicated sales tax is being enacted in a lot of municipalities. We have micro sales tax districts where in certain areas your sales tax can be 10, 11 percent. So we, you know, we've heard this uh, talking point several times about Missouri being a low income tax state. The problem is we're not a low income tax state with respect to the taxes that really matter. I was just going to say, you you almost read my mind there that, yes, St. Louis City has a one percent earnings tax on top of the fact that it already has a pretty high sales tax with all the other things. But if you go to some places in St. Louis County, which doesn't have an earnings tax, the sales tax may be over 10 percent in some areas because of a whole bunch of different variables. So isn't this more, I guess I guess what I'm trying to ask is, even if you got rid of the earnings tax, which I don't know if it's going to happen or not, that's going to be up to the voters or legislators. It seems like 
St. Louis County and St. Louis City would still have kind of a high tax burden when it comes to, at least to the sales tax. There are still, and I'm, I'm not disputing, there are still challenges we face, but that's one less challenge that we would face. And, and you're right. I mean, there are parts of Kansas City where the tax rate is higher than Chicago mm-hmm. because of what they, they've done with their sales tax. Well, and I know uh, one of the things that some groups and uh, – Include and Singfeld have advocated over the years is getting rid of the state income tax, for example, but then they were going to replace it with a higher sales tax. Um, although there was a, in some of the proposals that he put out, um, it was um, combined, I mean, he was putting a ceiling on what the local and the state sales tax could be together. Um, if you, I mean, how does the Show Me Institute play out on this? I mean, is the Show Me Institute advocating also getting rid of income taxes? And if so, uh, would you advocate, what, a higher sales tax or a VAT tax? Or how would you do that? Well, again, there are different ways you could go. With a sales tax, I think there are issues you need to address on the local level. And that, from that perspective, there are, there are property taxes, um, equalizing property taxes and valuation across the state. But from an income tax perspective, I think one of the things people need to know is that our income tax, you know, effectively 6% starts at the first 9000 yes. is where it's at. So, again, when we talk about, I want to go back to this high-low income tax states, there are other states that have similar income tax rates, but they don't start until $75,000. Mm-hmm. So, again, you're, you're, you're impacting lower-income individuals at a, a fairly quickly with the way our tax system operates. I mean, I know that, as I said, I'm just using Sinkfeld as an example because he's been uh, pretty active as far as trying to get rid of the um, state income tax. And but his proposal was to increase the sales tax, but put a ceiling on what the state and local sales taxes could be. So my question is, I mean, when the Show Me Institute looks at some of this stuff, if you are going to limit or discourage sales taxes and um, get rid of the income tax? How would you do? How, how would do, you, how do you balance that? Yes, well, how well, do you balance that? Especially with one thing you brought up, which I did want to talk about, was you were talking about equalizing the property taxes. I mean, one of the issues is that outstate the property taxes have been low for decades, and how would you even get? Well, I think part of it is you've got to start valuating property, including agricultural property at its fair market value. I mean, that that is an issue you you need to address. Um, The Institute has looked at, um, when you're talking about income taxes, the fact that our economic um, development credits, basically, when you look at the number of those that are issued, they're greater than the total amount we collect in corporate income taxes. So one of the things that we talk about is if you want to reduce income tax and make it even across the board, you know, quit having government pick winners and losers with their tax credit programs, is eliminate these economic tax credits, and then you've got then approximately $350 million in order to offset income tax increases. Or reduce income taxes. So th- there are ways that you can you can change how we're um, awarding tax credits that, in fact, would create inse- a basis for reducing the income tax. Well, how do you get legislators to listen to that when you've got a lot of legislators from rural Missouri who have been adamant about trying to keep the property taxes low? I mean, sort of, what's your talking point to at least get them to even 
listen to. Well, part of it is presenting the evidence to them about what's happening to our state economically. We are not doing well economically as a state. And that data is across the board. And so if it's not working, you need to be willing to step back and ask yourself, well, what could work? And look at other states, which are, are being more successful in, in growing economically. Now, but what about Kansas? I mean, a lot of them, I mean, Jeff City, they talked about Kansas, which has been following some of your proposals, uh, or at least, I mean, theoretically, um, as far as reducing the income tax and some other things, and they've run into financial problems. How do you counter that? Well, part of it, I think, is that um, we need to see how it plays out in Kansas. What we are seeing currently is that there's greater job growth in Kansas than there is in St. Louis. We have anecdotal evidence of a number of businesses moving from Kansas City, Missouri to Kansas City, Kansas, because of the tax benefits, which are not insignificant. And I think the other thing we need to look at when we talk about um, whether they're having budget issues or not is whether there's an actual reduction in revenue that they're providing to crucial services or whether it's a case of maybe their reven- that their spending isn't growing as quickly as people would like. And I think those are two different issues. We always engage in that discussion. So I'm sort of careful in looking at what's really happening. And I also would go back and say this is something that we do talk about at the Show Me Institute, is it's important for a state, if you really believe in the entrepreneurial spirit of individuals and allowing freedom, that you ask yourselves, are we prioritizing our spending properly? And are we fulfilling the proper roles of government versus getting involved in things which are better left to the private sector. Now, I know another issue that the Show Me Institute has been active for years is in the realm of education. And in the last couple of legislative sessions, there's been effort to kind of reconfigure the, the school transfer law. In 2014, there was even a provision in there that allowed people in or allowed children in unaccredited school districts to even transfer to a nonsectarian private school. And I think there has been in the legislature a philosophical shift on, quote unquote, school choice, because in 2007, 2008, that type of provision never would have passed the the legislature at all. And in 2014, it it even had support of some Democrats who were previously antagonistic to that type of idea. But obviously, it didn't end up getting implemented because of the governor. So with that backdrop in mind, what do you think the lay of the land is as far as as that particular issue? And where do you think it should go forward? Well, I think that issue is uh, becoming more and more critical for our state. I'm very excited. We have a new education um, director of education policy at the Show Me Institute. His name is Michael McShane. He comes to us from the American Enterprise Institute. He's got a national reputation for educational reform. And what we're, we're doing is... Um, typically in the state of Missouri, you've seen a conflict between the the urban, suburban versus the rural school districts. Yes. And, and oftentimes it's the, the rural school district legislators who are offering a roadblock to reform. So first of all, I would say I think it's absolutely criminal that we've let generations of students suffer in underperforming schools. That to me, that that's just immoral. Um, what we're doing is we're going to be publishing some research. It's coming up to show we've got over 500 school districts in the state of Missouri. It would be interesting, I think, to most of your listeners to know that over half of them don't even offer an AP course. I think it would also be interesting for them to know that over half of them don't have, offer physics courses. Um, and then when you look at um, the ACT, 
uh, and Michael McShane just spoke about this at a national conference, of the students who take the ACT in Missouri, which is a self-selecting group in and of itself, mm-hmm. only 30% test college ready. That's abysmal. Yeah. And so as a state, it's not just the, the urban areas. It's across our state. We need to address educational reform to offer our students better opportunities. And honestly, so they'll want to come back to our state. We need an educated workforce, and we want them to come back here to work. So now, now, looking toward, I know the Show Me Institute has advocated some of these changes for several years, and not much has happened. In part, I mean, uh, Governor Nixon has been sort of critical of yeah, some and, of these proposals, not, but yeah, yeah. whoever is elected governor, frankly, in either party, may take a slightly different approach. I mean, because uh, yeah, let a, me just kind of build yeah. on that because at the beginning of his 2008 gubernatorial campaign, Governor Nixon drew a very hard line in the sand that if he saw a, a education bill that he perceived as a quote unquote voucher bill, he was going to oppose it. He was going to veto it. And I think he followed through on that in 2014, 2015. Yes. I. I don't haven't talked to Attorney General Chris Coster, but my sense is he's less rigid about have, that than than I Jay have Nixon. I talked to him about that and, last few years. Yeah, yes. and and any all the four Republican candidates would probably be in the same mentality. So I guess Joe, you can ask your question. Yeah. Now. So my point is, I mean, it, it, has the institute thought about um, let's say focusing on some of the other issues? And laying low on that one a little bit until you have a new governor, because frankly, in either party, it will probably be somebody who may take a different approach to some of this. I think it's important to keep the discussion going because otherwise people, unfortunately, could tend to forget. (laughs) Right now, um, education savings accounts are are an issue that we're talking a lot about. And particularly, and I believe there's been a bill that may have been pre-filed, dealing with Uh, children with special needs. The notion of an education savings account is that it be money put in a fund which the parents can determine how best to service the the educational needs of their child. And I think, you you know, that's easily illustrated when you're talking about a child with special needs. Maybe they need a tutor. Maybe they need some special kind of software. Maybe they need a remote access course in order to get the credits that they need. Mm -hmm. So, that that's an easy way to illustrate how that kind of account would function. And in addition, it would have the benefit that any money not used could then be used for a college education. And we see other states doing this very effectively. So what what we're talking about is the fact that, you know, the show the the Show Me Institute and the Show Me State doesn't have to reinvent the wheel. Other states are doing it. It's working effectively. Why don't we implement some of these changes? Now, would you have like a ceiling on how much people could put in every year on something like that? Or how would you? How it, would it, it would actually be the state putting it in. So it would be it's not a voucher program, per se, but it's the state instead of, you know, right now, I think we spend on the average across the state about 10,000 per student, around 14,000 yeah. per student in the cities in St. Louis and in Kansas City. So there would be some amount of that that would be put in an educational savings account that the parent can use. States oh, use different. So this would be state money that would be put into those accounts. And and. Um, Okay. Different states use it different ways. Sometimes it's tested economically. So if you're at a certain level, you, you would qualify. I mean, there are a lot of different variables that you can enact so that you can handle the, you know, the revenue aspects of, uh, of whatever money the state's taking in so that you're not funding, you know, people who are right now going into to private education and, you know, you, you, may, you make it a, a, a burden that the state yeah. can't fully bear. Yeah, it- and we talked about kind of the gubernatorial impediment, but my assumption is having followed education, 
I guess, policy and politics in the Missouri legislature that the same type of battle will ensue over that type of proposal. Like you'll have people who are more amenable to school choice fighting against, you know, superintendents, people who are on school boards, people in rural school districts who don't like that idea. How do you kind of get that past the finish line, given that 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 legislative tension will probably be there. Well, I think part of it is making the case for the need, mm. which is what we're trying to do through um, these papers that we will be issuing. The other is to show how successful other school districts have been. And then, in fact, public schools get stronger and more competitive with these kind of free market reforms. They don't get weak and disappear. They actually get better. So it wouldn't be a politically speaking podcast if I didn't ask you about the stadium. I know that uh, it may not be an issue that you are as intimately aware of compared to taxes, but I know that that, that your organization has written about it. Um, I, I, I think it's interesting that this is the type of issue that has banded together, you know, people who I think are on the leftward spectrum with people who are on the rightward libertarian spectrum opposed to this. So what's kind of your take on this entire Rams saga, essentially? Well, I'll start off with um, the disclaimer that I am, in fact, a football fan. I like football. As am I. I love football. Um, But I have a real problem with taxpayers subsidizing the ultra wealthy in their sports pursuits. Yeah. Yeah. So that's sort of my bottom line. <laughs> so um, has the Shelby Institute taken a position at all on whether or not this should be a public vote or that sort of thing? We have. Um, we've talked about the fact that, first of all, we don't believe that this should be uh, taxpayer subsidized. The New Jersey, uh, they've done it privately. These people, you know, if it's going to make sense as an investment, private investment will step up. Mm-hmm. That's number one. Number two, if if we're going to do this as a state, then taxpayers ought to have a say in it. And it's interesting to me how um, our elected officials have sort of been over backwards to avoid allowing the public to have a say in this. What the interesting thing is, this is going to be kind of an unpopular thing to say because I think people in St. Louis are getting their pitchforks out against Stan Kroenke for potentially moving. But if you look at his proposal in Inglewood, California, I think it is like the vast majority of it is privately funded, including with his own money. Right. And I think people who have been opposed to publicly financing stadiums for a while would probably look at that and say, great, this is an example of somebody actually building their own stadium. Yet, obviously here, we don't want the Rams to leave. So he's kind of being made into this cartoonish, villainous character. Have you noticed that as as well? I I know you haven't been following it maybe as much as I have, but isn't that an example of what stadium opponents would want for someone to build their own stadium? No, absolutely. And they do. I mean, it, it is happening. So, And that's our point, that we don't have to take taxpayer money in order to subsidize this type of activity. If it's a wise investment, the private sector will do it. And the problem in, in Missouri is we seem to think, or our elected officials seem to think, that they are specially gifted in picking what we like to call winners and losers. And the problem is is that they're there to cut the ribbon for the winner, but they're not there when the door's shut and it turns out that that winner was actually a loser. And it's the taxpayers who end up losing. Be- so yeah. we would let the private sector do it. And I, I would agree with you that um, we are so wrapped up, or it, 
I, the perception is that there are people who are so wrapped up and that we have to have this football stadium that they'll do anything to keep it. And that just isn't wise. It, as you kind of alluded to, although the legislature is not exactly thrilled about how the state funding is going for this, it is not really out of the ordinary for the legislature to kind of have large economic packages go forward. The Bombardier uh Proposal in 2008 was a good example. The, the triple Ford se- plant, the Ford plant, the triple seven X that that was kind of the the talk of Missouri a couple years ago. So the legislature has been on board in the past with giving a lot of money to private a entities lot. like that. But they would say, especially with the Ford plant, that hey, this is an example where incentives caused the plant to be open and they're producing cars and whatnot. How would you kind of respond to that argument? I would say it's always nice to focus on what they might view as a success. Let's pull out the list of failures, which are overwhelming. And the other part of this, as I mentioned earlier in, in, in the podcast, is that we give enough in economic tax incentives, these tax credits, that we can completely eliminate the corporate income tax or reduce all income taxes almost five uh, half a percentage point. So, um, the legislature is very generous in giving away the taxpayers' money. I say let the taxpayers keep it. Now, another issue that the Shemi Institute has been involved in, and almost everybody, is right to work, which is the a proposed um, ban on unions or employers requiring all workers in a bargaining unit to have to pay fees or dues. Uh, it passed the General Assembly last session, vetoed by the governor, uh, for a num- number of reasons, it was not ever overridden during the veto session. Um, how do you see this playing out over the coming year or two? And how active will the Show Me Institute be as far as at least getting out its views on that issue? You know, we haven't been that active in the right to work effort. What we've been talking about has been public sector unions. It's very important to to us as an organization Um, to look at various policies from a perspective of individual freedom. So in connection with public sector unions, what we've been talking about is more transparency. Again, I I suspect a number of people don't know that public sector unions, um, the transparency laws that they're subject to are less than what private unions are subject to. So when we're talking about public sector, just so our, our listeners know, you're talking about what, police, fire, Go, uh, any government employee schools. unions. Yeah, you know. yeah, okay. And, and Just so they know. Right. Go, go so ahead. it can be anywhere across the board where um, public employees have decided to unionize. And so uh, more transparency so that, that their filings are similar to what private unions are doing so that their membership can see how they're expending money. Um, because unions can get involved in political activity, more transparency about negotiations when there's a collective bargaining uh, when collective bargaining is occurring between a public entity and their union. We believe that should be open to the public so that people can watch and observe what's going on. Um, and then the third is that because some of these once a union is certified and some could have been certified back in the the 60s or wherever that. Every couple of years, they should go for recertification so that the workers in that unit can decide, you know, you're doing a good job, we'll keep you, or no, we want somebody different. My understanding, though, and I think we were talking about this earlier, is that state government doesn't have a lot of public sector unions, but local government and school districts in Missouri are the ones where they're kind of more prolific. And is police that, and fire and, and, and police and fire. Well, and I think prisons can yeah, have them also. That, that too. Um, and I'm not quite sure um, 
where the SEIU is. I think they're in some of the public sector unions. Yes, also. they are. The, the reason I ask that is because I know other states are probably the polar opposite. Like all of state government is unionized. Like, I guess my question is, is this like a huge issue in Missouri or is, or is it an issue because of that there's a lot of lo- local governments that have, have unions? Well, I think it's a good governance issue. And as I say, also a worker freedom issue in the sense that you, you want a system that it's transparent so that the taxpayers are protected and that the workers are protected. So what you don't want is a system, which people can suspect, where unions get involved in local elections or, or statewide elections and basically are electing the people that they're sitting across from to negotiate the benefits uh, of wages and, and pension benefits. One of the issues all states are facing right now, and we've seen it in Detroit, is the whole issue of public pension liability. And uh, in Missouri, we've documented the fact that if you're looking at the five largest public uh, pension plans, while they would say that their unfunded liability is around um, $11 billion, using a more realistic um, actuarial assumption, it's more like $57 billion. And that's a huge liability that the taxpayers are on the hook for. So more transparency, more openness, and having um, the employees having a greater voice in their representation is important. Well, we'll have to leave it there. We, we could probably talk about every issue under the sun, but we want you to get back to your day. And I have a sick child to tend to. So <laughs> to close us out, uh, find all of our stories on stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe on Twitter at... Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And how would you follow the Show Me Institute on Twitter? Is it just Show Me, essentially? Yes. Or come visit our website, showmeinstitute.org. All right. You can do either of those things. And until next week, so long. Thanks.